Good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you now at Luke chapter 13. We're going to go all the way through from verses 1 to 35. Reasonably complicated passage, quite a few things in here. Can I encourage you to have a Bible open? Um, it uh, will really help you as we read through it together, try to think through what it means and what it means for us as well today. Let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Almighty God, our gracious and holy Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Help us now to understand what it says and help us to put into practice what we learn, that we may be living in the light of your truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember the day, uh, Mr Wood, the coach of the rugby team at my school, asked me to try out for the team. He said, you're small, you're way too skinny, your neck's too thin, but if you do weights every day, you should be okay. I tried out and I made the team, the mighty under 15 A's. Yay. As far as I was concerned, that was the beginning of my career as a wallaby. Uh, the Wallabies, for those of you who don't know, is the Australian rugby team. The path of my life was set in stone. I trained and I trained, thickened my neck every lunchtime. I, I dreamed about rugby. I watched rugby on TV. I read about rugby. I watched, uh, and, and in the under-15s, I did okay. The next year, I tried out for the under-16s team. I thought I was a shoe-in. I thought I'd get in for sure. And that's why it came as such a rude shock. There was a new kid at school, bigger, stronger, faster, more coordinated. And in a terribly biased decision, he made the team and I missed out. <laughs> I was sure I was going to be in that team, but I was left out. I still remember the feeling. I was devastated, shocked, humiliated. That was the end of my short-lived career as a prospective wallaby. Cried for days. <laughs> Still brings a tear to the eye when I think about it. <laughs> Have you ever had an experience like that? Perhaps not, as, uh, perhaps not quite as upsetting as mine, but uh, you, you, you thought you were in the team. You, you, you thought you had that job. You thought you were in with the in crowd. You thought you were part of that group. They loved you but you were in for a rude shock because you were left out. Ever had it happen? Not nice, is it? Well, last week in Luke's Gospel, do you remember Jesus was telling people to be ready for his return? You remember all the illustrations, you know, the master who went off to the wedding banquet and the thief and all those different illustrations for Jesus to say, you've got to be ready for me to come back. Why do we need to be ready? Because he said, God is our adversary. We have an adversary. We owe him an unpayable debt. And the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to have your debt paid, the only way to be ready for when Jesus returns is to put your trust in him, to turn away from sin, repent, and put your trust in Jesus. Well, now as we come into chapter 13, uh, people are telling Jesus about um, some of the kind of news events of the day. Uh, talking about a couple of tragedies that have been on the news recently. Uh, first, there's a terrible tragedy of human injustice. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, had slaughtered some Galilean Jews while they were at the temple offering their sacrifices. There'd been a bit of a rebellion. Pilate came in and slaughtered these Jewish people. Uh, second, another news story, there was a tragedy of human negligence, industrial accident. A tower in the town of Siloam had collapsed, killing 18 people. Now, people were asking questions. They'd seen the news and they were asking, well, 
Why would such terrible things happen to these people? Why would they suffer so awfully? Is it because they did something terrible, some heinous sin? Are they, are they worse than us that such awful things happen to them? And Jesus answers in a way that they wouldn't have expected. You see, they're assuming that ordinary people, in this context here, ordinary Jewish people, they're assuming that ordinary people are good people. A tragedy's not going to happen to us, to ordinary people, because we're good. Tragedy only happens on the news. Tragedy happens to bad people, to, to criminal types, to sinful people, people more sinful than us, more sinful than ordinary. But the problem is this. As far as Jesus is concerned, all people are bad. Even the Jewish people that he was talking to. All people, to go back to the last part of chapter 12, have God as their adversary, owe him an unpayable debt. All people deserve to face the judgment of God. All people deserve to perish. And that's why everyone's going to die, whether by tragedy and getting on the news or by some other way. And so these tragedies, they don't reveal some special, worse-than-ordinary sin. And when they watch the news, they shouldn't go, gee... They must be terrible to have all these bad things happen to them. No, no, when, when they watch the news, they should realise that it's a warning to them. We are all sinners. We're all going to die. And Jesus says, we all need to repent, to turn away from sin, put our trust in him. Otherwise, they, everyone, will perish. Luke chapter 13 and verse 1, have a look with me. Luke chapter 13 and verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices in this slaughter of them. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Can you see the assumption that Jesus is attacking? They think they're okay. It's because they're Jewish. They have the promises of God from the Old Testament, promises that... He will be their God. They will be his people. They thought that they were on the team. They thought they were in with the in crowd. Jesus disagrees. He says, Israel are in rebellion against God. They've been rejecting God and they are in great danger. And he goes on to use a story to illustrate. It's the story of a fig tree. Uh, this fig tree is not bearing fruit. And so it's in danger of being cut down. In the story, it's given one final chance. Verse 6. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. 
what is the story mean? What, 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 what's represented? Well, the fig tree, it's an Old Testament reference. It's an Old Testament reference to Israel. You see a few times that Israel is called the fig tree in the Old Testament. For example, in Hosea, Hosea 9.10, God says, When I found Israel, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Israel's the tree. God is sick and tired of Israel and their rebellion against him. But Jesus, the gardener, is giving them one more chance. If they'll put their trust in him, if they'll bear fruit, then they can be, still be part of God's kingdom. But now in the next story, we see again the leadership of Israel stubbornly refusing to bear fruit. Stubbornly refusing to put their trust in him. He does an amazing miracle right in front of them, but because he doesn't do it in accordance with the rules that they've made up, they reject him. Verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Can you imagine it happening here in church? 18 years, crippled, now suddenly in perfect health. How would we react? Well, look at how the, the leadership of Israel reacts. Verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Israel in danger. What does that mean for God's kingdom, though? Well, Jesus goes on to tell a couple of parables to say that God's kingdom is going to be fine. God's kingdom is going to be big. It might look small now. It might look like Jesus and a few motley disciples. It might be being opposed by the Jewish establishment. But he says, no, no, God's kingdom will be massive. And, and he uses an illustration, illustration that we've seen in Mission Month this year. Do you remember the illustration of the, the, the mustard seed turning into the tree and the birds of the air coming in? Can you remember what it meant from the Old Testament? It was the idea of the nations coming and being part of God's kingdom. So God's kingdom might look small, it might be being opposed by the Jewish establishment. Jesus says it's going to be big, and everyone will be able to come. Verse 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. We change scenes now, but we stay on the same theme. It's this issue of who's going to be in the kingdom. Is it going to be big? Is it going to be small? Who can be part of this kingdom? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and a person asks him a question. Are only a few people going to be saved? Verse 22... And Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? 
And again, Jesus' answer would have been a terrible shock, a, a surprise to the people who were listening. The people who are listening are Jewish people. They assume they're in. And they're sort of thinking, well, is it only going to be us? Is it only going to be us good Jews? Is it going to be small, your kingdom? Jesus says, there is a narrow door that you and everyone else must go through. A door that will soon close. And you and everyone else is in danger of being left outside. Jesus is saying the fact that you're part of Israel, the fact that you may be on the streets with Jesus, it's not going to make any difference. The fact that you're Jewish won't make any difference unless Jesus knows you. Unless you've become Jesus' person by repenting, turning from sin, putting your faith in him, it doesn't matter who you are. Jew or Gentile, you'll have no place in God's house. Still in verse 23, he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from, whether it be Israel or anywhere else. Then you'll say, well, we ate and drank with you and taught you taught in our streets. We're your people. You're, we're Israel. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And then Jesus paints this extraordinary picture terrible terrible picture people from all over the world are coming in to feast in god's kingdom but the jewish people who reject jesus are left outside they thought they were part of the team they thought they were in with the in crowd and to their devastation and shock and horror they are left outside those who are supposed to be first the jews end up being last verse 28 they'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you, you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, all of your people, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last, Gentiles, who will be first, part of the kingdom, and first, Jews, who will be last, left out. Okay, we're nearly there. Keep going, keep coming. Stay, stay with me. In the final scene, um, some Pharisees warn Jesus about some danger. King Herod has him in his sights, but Jesus is on his way to die in Jerusalem. King Herod's irrelevant. Verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, rejected by his own people, the Jewish people. And he says that's going to be desolation for them. He wishes, longs that they would receive him, but they're not going to. And he says, so they will be desolate until, and he quotes from Psalm 118, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you look up Psalm 118, you'll see that's actually 
not good news because the stone the builders rejected has become a capstone and the others rejoice while the builders suffer. He says, you'll be desolate until that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Uh, verse 34, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, this is the quote from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, we made it. We made it. Long haul. Uh, lots of stories in there, aren't there? But can you see there's, there's one kind of thread, one idea that's all the way through. Let's think about the stories. We started with the news stories, the tragedies. Those people who suffered, no worse than an average Jew. All people are in trouble with God. Jew, Gentile, everyone deserves to die. Tragedy should serve as a warning to repent. Second story, the, the, the fruitless fig tree. Just one more chance for Israel to bear fruit or they'll be cut down. Then the scene in the synagogue. Jesus does this amazing miracle, but it's on the Sabbath and the Jewish authorities reject him. He tells the parables, the mustard seed and the yeast. His kingdom will be big and the nations will be part of it, even though it looks small and is being rejected. Someone says, are only a few going to be saved? And he says, make sure you are. Go through the narrow door. Don't think that being a Jew will be good enough. No, no, there's only one door and it's Jesus himself. If Israel won't trust him, they'll miss out. And meanwhile, people from anywhere can come in, trust Jesus and be part of God's kingdom. And then finally, we're heading towards Jerusalem where Jesus knows he'll be rejected and Jerusalem will be left desolate. Uh, lots of stories, but can you see the thread that's running through them all? Can you see the, the, the big idea? Being Jewish won't save you. If the Jews think they can reject Jesus and still be in God's kingdom, they're in for a rude shock. They're going to be left out. Only Jesus can save. All right. I don't see too many Jewish faces as I look out here today, so perhaps the warning to the Jewish people is not going to mean all that much to you. What does it mean then for us in, uh, in Australia today? Do you know what? I actually reckon this is incredibly relevant to modern Australia. This is a really important application for the people that we hang around with every day. We've talked about this lots of times before. If you ask the average Australian, are you going to go to heaven, they will say... I hope so. I hope so. That's what probably 60, 70% of Australians would say. I hope so. And if you ask them, well, why would God allow you into heaven? They will talk about how they try to be a good person. But they don't do any really bad sins like murder or anything like that. They, they try to be kind to people. They look after their family. They work hard. They, they try to be good and they hope they will go to heaven when they die. They hope they're on the team. They hope they're in with the in crowd. The average Australian thinks they'll be okay. They think they'll have a place in heaven. And so when they see the news and all the terrible things that happen to people, they don't go, whoa, I'm in trouble as a sinner. They go, gee, I'm glad it's those bad people are getting what they deserve. 
the average Australian thinks they're on the team. And for us as Christians, we hope that they're right. The people that we deal with day by day, they might not trust Jesus, but they're nice enough people. That they live lives pretty similar to ours, not like they're bad and we're good. The people around us are nice enough, and so we hope somehow that there's just been a mistake somewhere and God will have mercy on them and let them all into heaven and everything will be okay and we don't have to say anything embarrassing like tell them about Jesus. Now, friend, if you are like the average Australian, if you are hoping to get into heaven because you're a good person, I have very bad news for you. I like the Jewish people here in Luke chapter 13, you are in for a rude shock because there is still today only one narrow door into heaven. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place to pay the debt that you owe to your adversary, to God. When Jesus rose from the dead, he opened the one and only one doorway into God's kingdom. If you rely on Jesus, if you ask him to forgive you your sin, he will forgive you. He will accept you into heaven. But friends, that is the only door. That is the only entry. That is the only way to get to heaven. Your good works will not be good enough to get you into heaven. There's a very interesting verse in the book of Galatians where uh, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Jewish people and, he, and they're thinking that they can get themselves in, in, into God's kingdom by being good, by obeying God's law. But he says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Why would he die on the cross if you could get yourself to heaven anyway? He died on the cross because you can't get to heaven. You're not part of the team. You're not in with the in crowd. Friend, please, please, stop hoping that you're good enough. Put your trust in Jesus or, friends, that door is soon going to close. Very soon you will die or Jesus will return and if you haven't relied on Jesus, you will be outside where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Jesus so vividly pictures here. Friend, please stop relying on yourself. Stop hoping you're good enough to get yourself to heaven. Put your faith in Jesus. If you are a Christian, but you just sort of hope that other people will be okay without Jesus, again, you are in for a rude shock. Your nice family, your nice friends, your nice workmates or the people that you study with, all those nice people who don't rely on Jesus will not be okay with God. I remember soon after I became a Christian, uh, I heard a talk about uh, how Jesus is the only way to be saved and how people who don't, who don't put their trust in Jesus are going to hell and the next day I went to work, I was working um, in the city and I was walking up Martin Place 
And as I walked up Martin Place, there was just me walking up and a few other people kind of walking up, dotted around, and thousands and thousands of people streaming down the hill on Martin Place. And I just had this vivid image that I've never, never forgotten of, it's like these thousands of people streaming to hell while just a few of us are walking in the other direction. Friends, people are not okay. And it is not good and not right that we stand by in silence and kind of hope for the best, that somehow, contrary to everything Jesus says, they'll be okay. It is not right or good that we should let our fear silence us. It is not right or good that we should let our desire for comfort stop us from telling hell-bound people about Jesus. Friends, this is real. Jesus says that on that last day, your nice friends and family will stand outside the kingdom, knocking and pleading, desperately weeping and gnashing their teeth, and no doubt wishing that you'd had the guts to confront them with Jesus, to show them the door while it was still open. The door will soon close. People need you to point the way. Friends, it's one thing to miss out on a rugby team or a job or something like that, but heaven is something you do not want to miss out on. You don't want to end up with a rude shock on that final day. So friends, enter through that door, put your faith in Jesus and show other people the door. I'm going to finish today by... um, uh, praying a prayer with you. Um, Can we put it up on the screen, please, Eva? Thank you very much. Um, This is a prayer. um, It's basically a prayer of going through the door. It's a prayer asking Jesus to forgive us. It's a prayer for for you if you want to rely on Jesus. It's a prayer for you if you want to reaffirm your reliance on Jesus, whether it's the first time or the 10,000th time. It's up on the screen. Please feel free to pray it with me. You can see what it says, that we're Asking, saying to God that we're sorry for how we've ignored him, run life our own way, we've incurred this debt to our adversary. And so we say what Jesus says, that we repent, as we turn away from sin. We say, thank you that Jesus died and rose again for me. Please forgive me and accept me because of what he's done. Do you see the difference? Not because of what I've done, because of what he's done. And then please help me to live from now on for Jesus. I think it's a, a good and right prayer in response to God's word, don't you? Should we pray? Feel free to pray with me out loud. Together. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for the way I've ignored you and run life my own way. I repent. I turn away from my sin. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again for me. God, please forgive me and accept me because of what Jesus has done. Please help me to live from now on for Jesus. Amen.